Welcome to Where Is Now. I'm Jesse yeah. Houston, and uh, this is my man Billy Bunton on the other side in Baltimore, Maryland. That's right. What's up, Jesse? How you doing, man? I'm good. How you doing in Montreal? Montreal, Quebec, there you go. Canada. Finally Montreal, got that right. I like to place. mess around and, and tell Jesse that he's in Toronto. <laughs> like a lot of my friends from south of the border. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, there's a bit of a simplification of Canadian geography that happens down there, where everybody just gets. It's not just not just pushed into Toronto, but you get pushed into having gone to school with Avril Lavigne and Drake and The Weeknd, and you guys all know each other. And you hang out with Beavers, and yeah, this is uh, Beavers. <laughs> and there's lots only of Canadian stereotypes. Winter, man. yeah, but no, that's one of the thing. One of the many things we're trying to achieve with this podcast is is breaking through the Canadian stereotypes. Um, and and today we're we're talking about a Canadian. We are. Talking about Jordan Peterson, man. That's right. Um, and this is, uh, as you know, every episode we go back and forth uh, and uh, introducing a topic while the other person uh, probes and asks questions. Uh, the, the, the person who's leading has done some research and is guiding us through the topic. And Jesse's topic today, as Jesse leads this episode, is Jordan Peterson. Exactly. And and you know one of the when we started this this podcast Billy and I one of our reasons for doing it was just like as kind of secular atheist minded people we were looking out there looking for models and how to be both good and bad um that we could build like a secular morality around as a way for being and also ideas for how to move forward in the world what kind of society we want to live in how we want to be both individually and in community and peterson has become probably like on this front one of the most famous and most divisive people around and i want to start this just by talking about what he's done to us or like what his fame means about us because i have friends who are like I, I, i'm in a few different spaces in the world you know I'm, I'm, i play a lot of basketball I, I i'm into a lot of different music and dancing things i'm into leftist politics i'm in a bunch of different worlds and depending on where I'm at, I get two totally different views on who this dude is and what he represents. Like, like describing two completely different people. And the New York Times has called him, or at least one columnist, David Brooks, at the New York Times called him the most important public intellectual on earth of our time. Um, others hmm. will call him like the most dangerous fascist on earth. Uh, maybe not the most dangerous, maybe second most dangerous after Trump, maybe. Up there. Uh, yeah, but up there. But uh, no matter what, love him or hate him, people just can't seem to get enough of him. You know, even after a, a serious depression, a bout with addiction um, to antidepressants uh, that knocked him out for a year and a concerted, like very concerted campaign to label him and anyone that listens to him is, is some of the worst names you could imagine um, and really try to de-platform him. Uh, this self-help guru is, is, is still chart-topping his new book, is selling millions of copies. His old book is back selling millions of copies again. It's back on the charts. Um, he's doing a tour right now of mostly right-wing talk shows, which, which is where he gets a more, um, uh, what you call, warm welcome, I would say. Um, 
the just to give you a sense of how how predominant he is in our culture still you know the author Bren Jennings put out a tweet a, a week or so ago saying like, you're on a date with a man who tells you the title of his favorite book you leave immediately what is the book the result of her tweeting that open-ended question which could have been any book in the history of the world the result is that Jordan Peterson was trending on Twitter for that day because there was just so that was the answer to so many people and then there were so many people being like what are you talking about that book helped me blah 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 whatever and then you've got uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates writing the new episode of Captain America and very very transparently redesigns the villain Red Skull who previously had been an actual Nazi um, as basically Jordan Peterson a you know he's a proto-fascist trying to raise an army of disaffected young white men with stories of self-help and and it even has him you know having a youtube channel where he's talking about the 10 rules to life as opposed to peterson's 12 rules to life and then peterson and his supporters flip this into a meme you know the red skull meme jo making jokes of it all this to say is that there's the both sides are feeding off of this um simplification of each other and uh turning each other into evil villains um and I, and I don't know what I don't know what you think about that, Billy. I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's been the rise of uh, Peterson. We talk a bit about that. I know we're going to get into the great guest that you got for this episode. Jesse is like firsthand, like involved in uh, the Jordan Peterson documentary rise of, of Jordan Peterson. Um, but uh, his rise is concurrent with just a general rise of a political discourse that uh, likes to in my view, dealing somewhat simplistic terms with difficult topics. And so you see this, this, uh, this way of feeding into each other and feeding each other's political and social relevance, but also, you know, who hurts, I think, are the people who really need to understand things deeply. And, and hopefully that's what we're going to do here is try to get into stuff a little deeply, try to extract some of the, some of the good that can be found in Jordan Peterson. And I think there's, there's quite a, quite a, quite a decent amount of good to be extracted from, I think, a whole pretty massive database of videos and lectures and writings, um, which many of it, you know, I don't have common cause with and I don't agree with. But I think, uh, you know, the whole purpose is to extract what we can, the good stuff. And let's get into it. And we're going to get we're going to get into that with uh, Maziar Gadiri, who uh, who's our interviewee today, who was the producer of the documentary film about Jordan Peterson's rise called The Rise of Jordan Peterson. And we're going to get to that second, but I just want to stay on this, this topic before we get to him and to the interview, uh, which was great. Like, I really think it was a, it was a fabulous interview, really hit, hit what we're trying to do with the podcast. And, but I just want to, on, the, on this point of like, what we need to do in the 21st century for media literacy or for, for what Chuck Deed, Public Enemy would call mental self-defense and fitness, um, what, what, is, what are the filters we need in our own head so that we can navigate out here? Um, I think one of them is to, to realize what does it mean that the algorithms, the social media algorithms, have realized that outrage is the emotion that most drives engagement and sharing and liking and activity and keeps you on the platform. It's not the only one, but it is number one. And so the fact that they know that and the fact that that's, that is the number one emotion that will get your stuff out there, it creates a situation where I think we have, the result of that is 
having political movements and, and leaders and gurus or whatever you want to call Peterson or Tanahasi Coates or these public intellectuals is that they get incentivized to focus a lot of their time and energy on identifying an enemy and then maybe exaggerating, I hope exaggerating, the, uh, the, the danger that that enemy represents to everything good. You know, to, if, to, not, if, if, if not exaggerating, at the very least, failing to tease out the fullness of the description. So it's like it can be an exaggeration through omission, sort of. Right. Um, which also, you know, happens through, you know, at what point does Tanasi Coates want to spend time talking about the best of Jordan Peterson? It's sort of it's hard to do this, but but the algorithms, as you're talking about, sort of make it worse it exacerbates the problem it makes it even all the incentives are to to do what you're saying which is to exaggerate and so what does this what does this mean in the case of peterson for example what it means for me is if you are interested in peterson's ideas or you find value in peterson's ideas on for example you know taking personal responsibility and finding meaning through that you know um, taking control of like whatever whatever it might be that you find positive in Peterson's life and whatever truths he might speak to you on those fronts, when you do hear him change tone and start targeting the social justice warriors or the postmodern neo-Marxists or whatever tag he puts on this group that he's identified as his ideological or political enemy, that's when you have to you have to put on this this filter. I'm trying to find a name for the enemy filter you know, the outrage filter um, in your own head and say, right, right, whether he's doing this consciously or not, or whether he's just been conditioned to do this by the algorithms because the posts where he does this just get way more likes and shares and engagement. You just have to turn it down a bit when you hear him start to talk about his enemy and the threat that they represent. And, uh, you know, I I think this is key for us being able to live in society together and experience all the benefits and, and, and good things about social media. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, media literacy, I think, is important. It's always been important, but I think increasingly so now. I mean, it's 2021. The sources of media are myriad. Everyone has access to a, a camera and can sort of um, produce pieces of work, political commentary. And I think it's very important for us to, whether it's Jordan Peterson or whomever we regard with some respect that we want to take the best out of we we need to figure that out and i think the algorithm is key understanding how that works and how that influences the media that comes out yeah and 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 remembering that like we've experienced a lot of benefits from this this explosion of access to media and access to like we, we we're hearing stories from all kinds of individuals and groups that in the old 20th century media landscape would never have gotten their stories out. So we're, we're, exactly. we're experiencing huge benefits. So now it's just a question of, okay, what do we need to do as individuals, as tech platforms, as whatever, uh, politically to, to be able to, you know, turn down some of the negative aspects of it. And so I think this, this enemy filter is part of it. And, and on that front, um, this, this, because it, it gets, speaks to something that a lot of people have spoken to, which is just like the difficulty in having nuanced conversations on these platforms and then how that spills into real life um, when you start to see people in your own family or close circles as enemies because of their position on, on something. Uh, you know, and, and, and this became really clear, and, and now we're going to get to Maz. 
Maz is uh, is ba based in Toronto, and he's part of the documentary organization of Canada, which I was also a member of um, for documentary filmmakers. And when this film, The Rise of Jordan Peterson, was released, or they were trying to release it back in 2019, uh, they got incredible pushback. So there was theaters that had agreed to show the film for a week or whatever it might be. And, and then under pressure, sometimes by employees, sometimes by outside groups, they just, they told them, no, sorry, we're not going to show it. Um, then there was this incredible in, internal debate because one of the, another member of doc Canada brought up to the group on the listserv, like, Hey, can we issue a statement in support of our members who just had their film kind of, revoked and they used the term censorship and then that led to this just explosion of debate in which people got called horrible names i think four or five members got put on moderation so so like their posts mm. would only be shown on the listserv after a moderator had viewed them uh people got mm. called fascists people got called all kinds of of terrible names and uh, and it was really it was really and I I remember the moment I remember being like whoa there had never been a discussion like this at at some level it was more entertaining than most of the discussions on the doc board but it also was like wow wow if we're <laughs> the documentary filmmakers and like we're n none of us have seen this film and we're screaming at each other about whether or not this film should be seen when none of us have seen it wow you know this is this is yeah. kind of great like you know this is. This is kind of wild zone. And, and we're supposed to be off in the corner of people that have the, like, you know, the patience to sit with a subject for three years and find the nuances and find, you know? Um, yeah. And so that was, it was a really scary moment. So <clears throat> I just thought as soon as I was thinking about uh, doing Jordan Peterson, I was like, we needed to get somebody from Holding Space Films, whether it be Maziar Gadiri, who eventually did it, who did it, or his, uh, his wife, Patricia, who was the director of the film, uh, Patricia Marcoccia, who is pregnant with their first child they're also life partners uh so big congratulations to them and um yeah i'm and glad so we got him maz was great man maz was great and uh you're gonna jump into that whenever you can <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maz, was, maz was fabulous I, we just have to say one thing first of all which is that we were testing out a new uh a new tech setup um which ended up with a serious serious audio issues in the first 20 minutes mm. of the interview uh we were able to catch it 20 minutes in i take full responsibility for it because i was doing the recording um and uh but, uh, but right, we Jess. did get that we did get that figured out the problem is we lost that first 20 minutes the good news is you're going to jump right into the interview when we're all warmed up and and moving uh just have to give a little context is where it does pick up is uh where we're showing a clip from the film and uh, this clip speaks to how Jordan Peterson came into international fame uh, or infamy, uh, as you wish to see it, in the first place, which was here in Canada with the context of Bill C-16, which was legislation to add gender expression and gender identity to the Human Rights Code. And Peterson, we're, we're going to talk about it uh, in the interview after this clip, but basically what had happened is Peterson had put on a YouTube video called uh, Professor for Free Expression or something along these lines and really put this in the framework of they're going to throw us in jail for um, not using pronouns. And this is compelled mm -hmm. speech by the government. And this is a threat to our freedom. And this is like a big step down the slippery slope to totalitarianism. Um, 
and, I, and, and you know, we'll, we'll talk in the interview about the certain, while there was massive exaggerations in that, it did speak to certain zeitgeist, certain things that people identified with. So then what happens is, and this is where, what you're going to see in the clip, is uh, there's a big attack on, on him and, and a lot of people supporting him. And then there's these students that organize a free speech rally at the University of Toronto where he was employed as a, as a professor of psychology. Um, and... He, they're, they're having real trouble getting the thing started uh, because there's people interfering with the speaker system. And then you see Jordan just decides to go a cappella. Okay, so let's try this again. The reason I'm defending freedom of speech is because that's how people with different opinions settle their opinions in a civil society. And if we lose that, if we lose that, We'll lose so much you can't imagine. It's as a consequence of free speech and the ability to speak that people can put their finger on problems, articulate what those problems are, solve them, and come to a consensus. And we risk losing that. Now, the radical left activists are trying to turn this into an argument about sexual politics. And it's only nominally about sexual politics. It's about language that's designed to control our freedom of expression. So the first thing you see in that clip for me is this, um, the concept of platforming and deplatforming, and this thing that a lot of people on the, on the left have taken on, which is the idea of like, to the fight for freedom in the 21st century involves making sure people like Jordan Peterson don't get to speak. And their tactic in this situation was to bring some white noise on a phone and plug into the speaker, right? This is the speaker that Jordan was going to be speaking from, and they, would, they were plugging in their um, cell, cell phones into it and playing white noise really loudly. And then you see Jordan's reaction, which is pretty, uh, pretty intense. And then you see this, it bring out this side of Jordan, which is a little scary, given some of the things that we know about him now, in particularly his academic interests for many years of studying despots and tyrants and their rhetoric and how they use psychology and all this stuff. And just the, just the tone in his voice and his face and as he's going on about free speech and how these people are trying to control us and speaking to this really this argument of freedom and totalitarianism and and really turning up the volume. And I, and I think the other element of this is he's, much like Lauren Southern you described before, like he's taking a group that's already vastly misunderstood by the majority of people. And he's kind of playing off that misunderstanding to make it seem like they're a much bigger threat. Like, uh, and what they're asking for is such a huge threat. And as you mentioned earlier, the bill has since passed and nobody's gone to jail for not using the right pronouns or any of these things that he was worrying, warning us about that was going to happen as a result of bill 16 haven't happened. So this, this clip for me brings together all these, all these elements. I don't know. What was it like filming it or what are, you, what are your thoughts on some of these things? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, like Jordan, he, yeah, like it, we showed in the documentary that, yeah, part of Jordan's research has been kind of studying the, the ways in which somebody commands a crowd and what they do and what they say and sometimes they pause or the, the words they use and everything. So, 
So Jordan is really aware of, of those rhetorics. I think for most people that I talk to that aren't, that are like cool with trans people, like they don't really care, like they're fine with that or they'll use the pronoun like on a personal situation rather than hypothetical. They, they were drawn to the event because they liked, Jordan spoke to something that they felt Hey, uh, why can't I say that? Why can't I say that most like black people that are shot are shot by other black people, for example? Why can't I say that there's a difference between men and women? Shit like that, right? Now, it could be as crude as how I just said it without the nuance, but then the response that somebody would get is like, well, you are a racist fascist rather than actually you just said something kind of racial racial or racist right so then but even if you said it in the right way it becomes very personal so jordan jordan spoke to like a bigger zeitgeist that people were like hey man you you said the thing i've always wanted to say and what do you mean and then there was a bit of a simplification uh, around bill c-16 and what it is and the truth of the matter is that we, we we did all the reading like many of these soft laws like interpretive most laws aren't are interpretive but this one really is it's like it really just depends on the details and what the judge for example even if it gets to that most don't even get to that level of like we actually going court like it's very rare um so you know so so, so is it fair to say that yeah, sorry yeah. sorry is it fair to say then that a lot of you know the what rose him to prominence, the, the narrative that he pushed was was oversimplified on his part, but he's also responding to, and I've said this uh, quite often with Jordan Peterson, like his timing was such that, you know, it happened at the time when just generally the discourse around activism and, and improving our world is simplified and people are, are shrinking people down, you know, white people are this and men. And so we have this like clash of, of simplified narratives happening. Uh, what do you think of that? And then one more thing is like, Jordan gets criticized sometimes, I don't know, fairly, fairly or, or unfairly that his audience is, is like men. You know, is there a unique, special resonance or value for what he's saying to men right now in your view or, or no? Yeah, so the, okay, so the first part is that, first of all, like about the whole dialogue thing, I mean, people always say this, like, because it's what it seems like. But, like, Jordan never really even slightly entertained the thought of actually talking with, like, a trans person that was an academic, like, not a a 22-year-old, right? They want Lee Ayrton. Lee Ayrton is the one, uh, they are a, um, like, a a gender academic... um, and we interviewed them several times. And Lee Ayrton's a reasonable person, not, not like um, bombastic and all that. Lee Ayrton wanted to talk with Jordan, just have a beer. Jordan didn't want to do that. Like, there was never a dialogue. And I don't think it ever really was about that for Jordan. Mm. It was like, hold on. Okay. When I, when I saw that video, I'm like, okay, that's, I mean, that's provocative. It's interesting. It's thought-provoking. It's like an interesting theory of like, but like my first question is like, okay, so 
shouldn't you go and talk with somebody who's trans and maybe around your age? Like, there's a few at UFT, like at our teachers, but that never happened. And I think it because he didn't want it. He didn't want that. There's a degree to which Jordan played a kind of martyr card. Like, it would have been really, really good for him if he went to jail, if you yeah. know what I mean. Do you know what Mandela, I mean? Mandela, you would like have the Mandela like, bump on his popularity. Oh, buddy, yeah. like, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so Brandon Costin was like, no, Jordan, you don't get to go to jail. And Jordan was just kind of like, look, I'm having all these opportunities. Stefan Molyneux really likes me. I'm going to talk with him twice. Uh, I'm on Joe Rogan. I'm, I'm, I'm blowing up there. I'll, go, I'll do Joe Rogan two more times. My book's coming out. Um, I'm, ta- I'm, being, I'm, I'm being invited and flown around to churches. It's like, this, I've never done this, man. This is amazing. This is what I always wanted. I'm not going to go and waste my afternoon talking with some trans person. And potentially, you know I mean? yeah, not only to have that talk, but also potentially not ruin, but water. Maybe the message changes a bit once yeah. he has a, a meaningful conversation. And, and now, he, you know, uh, so that's interesting. That's Crazy interesting that transformation. But it brings me to my the other thing that fascinates me about Jordan Peterson is his religious angle and his use of it. And I, and I, I don't believe that Jordan Peterson is he, he clearly is passionate about. Christianity. I've seen him tear up and and become really emotional over the idea of Jesus. And at the same time, I do not believe that he experiences Christianity or thinks about himself as a Christian the same way that, for instance, members of my family think that they're you know believe in believe in the tenets of and the and the stories of the Bible and Jesus's relationship with with the divine as the Son and, and all of this. So, um, to me. He uses it. It's a utility for him. How do you how do you see it? There's so much that I like about his approach to it, in the sense that my wife and I we film many of those Bible lectures. So I'm sitting there right behind the camera with the little red light, and I'm listening to these things I've never listened to before because I, you know, I'm just not I'm just not drawn to religion because it just feels so collectivist to me really it's just like you know sorry stranger with a robe you do not have any morality over anything you know earn that right anyway but so we're there and i'm listening to these stories and it's like okay like as a filmmaker as a storyteller as a writer i like i like hearing oh that's interesting jacob's ladder that's oh Cain and abel oh that's that's like in so many films and i'm like i like i like parsing that like I'm a big like hip hop head. So when I listen to a song, I try to find who sampled it. I'm like, that sounds where so I, I like that genealogy of expression. So then if I look at like Cain and Abel, right? Or some of these other stories that I'm forgetting now that are from the Bible, and I think about, well, this is like that film on Netflix I just saw last week. So that that's cool. I like it's cool. That's I think that's the right word for it for me. It's like, oh, that's that's interesting to think about. He gets that there's something about things that are old that makes people want to hear more about it. So he, 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 he's using that Christian vehicle as a way to give people a sense of shared identity. Um, and and uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I, I know people that like, it's such a trip. It's like, I know people that 
have become Christians. I know people that have gotten married because of Jordan, mm. you know, because wow. it's like it, for a long time, right? Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, um, I was born in 83. So I'm a nineties kid. Religion was always not cool. Mm. Like you go to church, what are you scared? Like it was always like that, right? Where I grew up, yeah. right? It was like it was just not cool going to church, let alone a mosque. It's like so, so then, so there's that. So then Jordan's trying to bring that back, and he's making he's made it kind of interesting because he came out in the limelight so badass, right? Clint Eastwood, right? He played like he had that Clint Eastwood meme, and he played like. Tom Petty, I'm not going to back down and I won't use your words. And they loved it, right? It's like you, you made conservatism cool again, right? So people went with that and they were like, oh, by the way, there's some really cool stories here. Now, some of them have become like Christians and like go to church. Some of them just like the story. Some of them just like Jordan. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's complicated. And I, I, but also, you know, Jordan, Jordan wanted to have an apparatus behind him you know, like in the Bernie article in Toronto Star, right? Like he, he wanted to buy a church so that he could give sermons, but he's not going to give the type of sermons that you would expect. He's going to basically do his own thing, mm-hmm. right? And so it was kind of like there's an apparatus here for him to be the guy of like with a huge following. You can, there's no other way for you to get such a huge following of a certain type of fan without religion. And now here's the other thing. This whole messiah complex, Jordan does have that. But again, it's kind of true. That's the thing. Like some of these guys I met on tour, like we did like 13 cities, five and five in Texas. It's like, yeah, man. I mean, give credit where it's due. Jordan is kind of like a messiah character for some young white guys, usually white, usually dudes that don't have a dad. Maybe their dad was a little bit too masculine and hard on them. Maybe their dad was a little bit too feminine and too soft on them. And those are crude terms, but I think you know what I mean. Or they just weren't around or never met him. And so they hear this guy on YouTube like saying shit that, you know, they're, you know, generally pretty good, right? In terms of like the self-help stuff. It's like, yeah, man, like get your shit together. Stop smoking pot and watching porn and uh, go, ask, go ask her for her hand in marriage. And they did it. They fucking did it. That's the thing, right? And they're doing better. So it, 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 and they feel like they're doing better. Right? It's like Jordan, Jordan can speak to those dudes. To see the depth of hunger that people had for an encouraging word was unbelievably tragic. And for people to come up to me repeatedly over and over and over, hundreds, maybe thousands of times, and say, you know, I was in such desperate straits looking for some encouragement, unable to find it. And then, you know, I came across your lectures. I thought, Jesus, it's pretty thin gruel to feed a starving population. I mean, I'm absolutely pleased beyond belief that people have found what I've done useful. Jordan isn't reading the Bible cover to cover. He's going to like Bible gate. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He's going to those passages and being like, and he's smart enough to be able to be like, oh, I I can talk about this. This is like that. Or this is like a Mesopotamian thing. Or this is like, and he's just drawing all these connections. And then people that are specialists in some of these things are just like, oh, God, that's not, <laughs> this isn't. And he's kind of like a magpie, right? And that's, he can do 
that if people want to buy it, he's, mm-hmm. he could do that. But he's not. He's not really. In 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 a way, he's almost kind of like a tourist, you know, mm-hmm. with that on the, on the religion on the religion end, yeah. on the on a few, or in general on a few things, right? Uh, on the I would say I would say that he understands that people have a religious substructure. He's like you're religious whether you know it or not, or whether you like it or not. Right. But when it comes to choosing Christianity, um, something that he didn't grow up with. Um, he is uh, drawing from, man, I, I, I don't know exactly. I, I, this is all just theory. I don't know for sure, but I feel like he's, it's, a, it's a cultural vehicle to get to a point of... Um, Where he is now, right? Like the Messiah thing, like you're saying. He, yeah. To get that, that yeah. audience, it's the easiest way, as opposed to being this, you'd have to fight through... Yeah, like being an atheist publicly, you have to fight through that in people's minds for people to listen to you. I guess if if they're not primed for that, or if they see that as a negative thing, and in the United States, I don't know about Canada, the United States, a lot of people are not fans of atheists. You know what I mean? And and uh, uh-huh. so it could make sense. Anyway, yeah. One thing that I because Jordan, you know, one thing that I wish Jordan would talk about more is like, why don't we talk about this? He talks about kind of like race and IQ. With Molyneux, it's like, okay, well, go in there. Okay, okay. Right. But check this out. Check this out. Why don't we make the connection between IQ and political affiliation or IQ and religion? Right? And you know what I'm going to say? It's like, if we want to talk about stats and facts don't care about your feelings, it's like, yeah, man. Like, people that are more conservative, people that live in rural parts, people that are more religious, Statistically, they have lower IQ. <laughs> Don't tell them that. Oh, and by the way, you know where I got that from? Like, I looked it up myself too, and it's like true. But Jordan said that in a in a kind of just kind of like a passing way in the number two Sam Harris debate. Mm. And then Sam kind of just like actually Jordan tried to help him walk it back, and Jordan's like, no, no, it's there's a connection there. It's like let's talk about that as much as we've been talking about race and IQ, right? Mm. But to be clear, it's so, like one of the things I do like about Jordan is like if you learn a statistic like that, like any kind of statistic that has to do with disproportionality across groups or differences across groups, you can't bring that when you meet a person from that group and assume that about them. Because these are, these are, this is actually one of, I think one of his most powerful messages is actually like to remind people of like, yeah, as we learn things about different groups are exposed to different things. It's like when you meet an individual, you shouldn't make assumptions about what their life has been like, how much they suffered, how much privilege they have. You might know cer- certain things, like obviously look at me, you know I have white privilege, but you don't know whether or not I come from wealth or come from poverty or, you know, there's, there's different things. There's a lot of questions and number of questions that you have no idea about. Um, and, and so similarly, it's like if you meet somebody who's conservative or religious, you can't automatically assume they have an IQ of 50. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to some of the most important things and the most some for the most part for the some of the most important things, Jordan said the right things, mm-hmm. like what you just said. Jordan has made it clear about those those um publicly. He's made that clear about, you know, don't hurt the individual for something that their group is affiliated with. 
Yes, that's that's very true. Yeah. What do you think in general about like I feel like this is something that our society's trying to figure out that he's taken a firm position on that I think is helps explain a lot of his popularity is this question on the response to what accounts for success. Like when you see somebody who's successful, is it because they worked hard or they have they they merit that success or is it because they have privilege and power that was given to them without merit and you know there's there's been a left critique which is it's mostly about privilege and power and then he comes back and says no we are living in the most fair and meritocratic society ever created and i think people have um latched on to that as as one of the messages that they like right yeah man um <laughs> I mean, okay, both both things are true. Like, I mean, you know, Jordan doesn't think white privilege exists. I can talk about an, a white privilege in a way I could break it down that I think is rational and not identitarian and not ideological. Like, just, you know, what I've seen. And we could talk about that. I could break that down. But I think Jordan is not into those kind of conversations because it might imply that he has something he didn't, he didn't, he doesn't deserve, or him, or his dad, you know, or his dad's dad, right? People don't like to hear that, especially if you are the type that has had your own struggles, like with mental health, right? So you've had your own like physical pain, like every day, like most of Jordan's adult life, like he would wake up in the morning for like an hour, just in a, excruciating, like pain you know it's because of his condition or whatever so it's like and then you go online and say well you have white privilege like you don't know me it's true so i get it but but the part that he missed that people don't get is that jordan is not very well traveled like he's never really like he went from like he did his master's and his phd both at mcgill and he's never really immersed in a new culture right so the part that he's missing is colorism man like fucking most of the world prefers white shit black people prefer a lighter tone iranians do it indians do it bleach in the face cream you know it's like yeah man like that's the thing like it's you're clearly more trusted respected and seen as beautiful if you have a lighter tone you know so indians look at persians say oh you're so beautiful persians get nose jobs to look like nicole kidman like yeah. it's so obvious. Like it's, you, but you would only know that if you experienced it, and if you're not yeah. ideological, you don't have to yeah. travel the world to understand the world. But if there's an ideological block that says, well, if they want to change their nose to be like Nicole Kidman, that that's their choice. What does that have to do with me? It's like no. The point is, is that most of the world, outside of like queer theater and like BLM, like anti-racism shit like you have like a guy who's like a quarter black and he's like like i'm i'm from the zulu nation <laughs> like you're saying that because it gives you street cred because you live in an art space but most people around the world they like that white shit you know that's the thing mm -hmm. right so anyway what i'm trying to say is um yeah what you asked me about like privilege and like hard work my family is a good example of just kind of like hardworking people we always bought civics and corollas like you know and and we came as refugees in a welfare motel for like first year in scarborough and um you know um 
and they 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 own a house. They've owned a house since I was like maybe eighteen. They always rented up until then, you know. And that's Canada, right? That's how good this part of the world is. Immigrants know that, not the ones that are on Twitter. Immigrants know that shit, and racism, and it's still worth it because yeah. it's so much better than where we're from. Not not not. I'm not talking culturally. Like there's so much things about that that culturally we miss from where we're from. Any diaspora can talk about that. I'm talking about government and institutional infrastructure. And that's, that's where I depart from the left, even the far left for sure, but even center left. I mean, when I say this stuff, they don't like that I'm saying it because it turns down the volume of their activism. But I'm saying it because it's true, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's key. And I think that's something Jesse touches on a lot with Jordan Peterson is like this ability to, um, we have a clip. Where, it, you know, he believes in the assertion of, of your truth, you know, speak your truth. And I think that that's important. And I think even if it's one of the challenges and one of one of what helps him sort of rise right now is I think um, even on the left, there's this concern and this effort to protect groups by forming narratives that don't, we, we don't allow certain truths to be articulated, you know, um, because they aren't seen as helpful to like a broader political aim. And um, that's part of what makes Jordan hated and it's part of what makes him loved, I think. Um, I guess that's all I have. But he also <laughs> plays that game. I mean, for somebody who's so deep in academia and understands concepts like logical fallacies and how to construct an argument, when he takes on stuff like white privilege, he participates in the active use of fallacies, right? So he, he'll say like, this is why white privilege, and, and my experience with him is when he starts to raise his voice and use words like wrong and whatever is when I know he's out of his lane. And he, he starts to talk about like, well, if these people are really interested in white privilege, then they should be interested in tall privilege. And, and then he starts listing out all these other things that are statistically shown to contribute to whether or not somebody is trusted or seen as beautiful or rises in organizations or whatever. Um, and he'll, he does this, uh, kind of switch thing where he, what says, aboutism? he makes it. Yeah. What about? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, and then he comes back and said, and that's why white privilege is bullshit. It's like, well, no, you didn't in any way <laughs> show that white privilege is bullshit. You just, you brought up another interesting point, which is like, yeah, there's a whole lot of other forms of privilege, but you didn't take this down at all. And then this thing gets 8 million views and gets, put as Jordan Peterson destroys SJW white privilege fantasy or something. I don't know. See, the way he's going about it shows that he's defending himself personally and his dad. Because mm -hmm. he's saying, well, uh, okay, exactly what you just said. Okay, but, but yeah, what about tall privilege or, or city privilege or having two-parent privilege? What about that? It's like, yeah, dude, privilege, privilege, privilege. Yeah. Okay, so you, we agree, right? White privilege is in there too, right? It's like, no, yeah. I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, white, white aboutism is, it, white aboutism is usually a clue that you're right. Like, the white aboutism. <laughs> I think, I think another thing we can add on there for like why he makes these choices is, I mean, again, he called, he's a clinician. He's, he's, he's conservative. I think he's really um, distrusting, like you said, of mobilization. In his mind, he wants people to be, a bit humble about what's possible to change 
as a, as a group. He's most he believes the most interesting changes occur individually. As if each of us manifests our best selves and takes on you know the fullest extent of our responsibilities in life, then collectively things will happen. But it really it really has to be rooted in in, in the individual choice. And I think there's limits to that. You know, I think that you can't. There are certain problems that are social. So certain problems that need collective style. I think his mistake, one of his biggest mistakes in my view, is that he he just he throws that out of the window. He has no time for that. Um, yeah. And I think it's, but it's partly rooted, I think, in his just his practice and his as a psychologist. You know, is he a psychologist? Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah okay. He's a he's okay. a yeah. clinical yeah. psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. So. But yeah, he defend he defends the status quo, in 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 various Whatever ways, because, like various approaches. Because because it's personal. That's how he sees it. I think. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, um, you know, you're 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 implying that I didn't work hard, so I'm denouncing this ideology. Mm-hmm. And and you know, you know, I, I'll be honest, man. Like I, I'm in certain. Like I I occupy like film art even theater space, like that's my work. And, <laughs> you know, I'm not white, I'm a little dude. I got refugee story, you know, I'm pretty savvy to both sides, right? And so I, I know how to play that. And so I hear some things, like I'm in one like CBC, uh, CBC is the Canadian, uh, you know, it's our public TV. It's, they're the guys that actually, to their credit, they're the guys that uh, first showed our documentary. And that was dope in 2018. It was a TV cut. Um, but so I'm in this conversation on CBC, like, um, sorry, it's um, like a uh, info session for some initiative. And yeah, man, like it's straight up, like let's make fun of rural whites. It's like Chad is what this guy who works for the CBC and is talking to creators about some initiative. It's like, we don't want to make uh, videos or content for Chad in Saskatchewan. And then in the comments, they're like making fun of Chad. It's all very kind of gentle mocking. But the point is, like, what's up with that? Like, and then they lim- limelight for so long. And, and it's like, I- I've been to the prairies. We got two nominations at the Yorkton Film Festival, which is in the prairies, which is like mi- our Midwest, Billy. Um, and it's totally rural. And they're fucking, do- they're dope. Like, they're super kind. I had a great time. We're shooting rifles. You know, we're, it's, it was so country. We're eating lobster shipped from, like, the Atlant- Atlantic. It's part of the festival. And we're shooting rifles. And, like, some of them are very, they're xenophiles. They want to know, they, you know, they want to tell me about their mm-hmm. Asian wife. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. have a few drinks, right? They're not, you know, it's not the way this BIPOC urban <clears throat> kid that works at CBC that gets encouraged to say that shit publicly yes. while working for CBC. <laughs> so that shit is also true. Like there's this yeah. anti-white, anti-rural, anti-Canadian, anti-American, anti-Western, anti-male vibe that I get where it comes from, but it, it gets too overzealous when they're talking to themselves. They're like, who can be more woke? It's like, we had enough and this is, you know, and it's like, Dude, like there are people that are listening that are like, well, you know, those conservatives aren't completely wrong about being, um, you know, uh, discriminated against. And I mean, and I mean, straight up white, you know, you got to be there's like a, a thin layer of like what you're if you're white and a guy and straight and tall and thin and not ugly, 
Shit. There's Jesse's Becca. all that. <laughs> That's Jesse. <laughs> yeah. No, tell me the secret. Tell me the secret, Billy. Don't interrupt. There's a thin layer of what you're allowed to say. Or you better shut the fuck up. You better be an ally and shut the fuck up, you know? <laughs> unless you unless there's people are trying to get a job from you. Right? So I've seen it, man. Like they have to bend the knee, you know, and they have to say these crazy things. It's like you actually believe that? it's like on clubhouse go on clubhouse like that's a really good example because the way people talk when they're on stage on clubhouse they're just like oh my my grandmother is was mohawk and i've always tried to make films that and this is like a multi-million dollar white producer it's like you you ain't mohawk dude (laughs) pulling from the like and like my i married you know in this like i married into this you know, Filipino family, and I feel their strain, and I want to, it's like, shut up, nerd, you know? <laughs> Just shut your mouth, you know? We, we've so touched you... on that a bit, Jesse, go ahead. No, go ahead, Billy. No, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I, I do a podcast with a good friend who's a tall, white, <laughs> handsome, you know what I mean, straight guy, all this stuff, and we've touched on on some of these things, and um, I think it's really interesting. We've talked about melanin together, Jesse, and Jesse's actually very carefully uh but i think with intelligence and care it's like you said you could talk about white privilege in a way that is rational and it's like self-evident you know and jesse can do the same thing what happens is some people the incentives aren't always there to do that and so you reduce people to karen and to chad and it's like these people are are, it's better to actually find out more about these so do you think maz do you feel like we're just living in a funny period that won't actually end up lasting long in the way we talk about each other in these reduced caricature ways or are you like do you think jordan's onto something here that maybe we're at the we're opening the door to like bloody racial conflict or identitarian conflict no no, man well okay here's (laughs) the thing right like white people are gonna be a minority that's not an alt-right Thing. That's just statistically. But then white's going to change. People's identities are dynamic and they change. You know, like um, my wife's Italian. She was born here, but both sides Italian. She speaks Italian. I was born in Iran. Uh, she's pregnant right now. Congratulations. Our kid will... Congrats, thanks, man. Bro. Yeah, our kid will be half Italian, half Iranian. But basically, our kids, the kid's parents are both Canadian. They both are most comfortable. They dream in English. And when I lived in Brazil three years teaching English, by the end of it, I started dreaming in Portuguese. So mm. I dream in English. The kid's going to dream in English. So what is that kid? Uh, probably white, right? Maybe. Like, I don't know. It, it's up to the kid. So it, identity is so weird. But I think like in a big crowd of people, like, oh, there's a bunch of white people there. So it's like identity is just such a complicated and annoying and also it can be very it's also very inspirational for art right like a lot of identity is in art and film it's in my shit my documentaries and my my uh, fiction um so i i I think that we're going through a phase where race but there's also a fatigue people are getting a little bit fatigued like there's a lot of people that talk about this stuff but there's a lot of people that don't They, they just they're just not, they don't care. They're not clicking on. Like I wrote this article about like cultural appropriation because there was this lame p- opinion about this broth bar and this Chinese uh, 
blogger made a big deal out of it and I wrote this article and I sent it to a bunch of friends and some of them were like dude I I usually don't read this stuff but I'll read it because you wrote it like a lot of people are just they're just not interested in in reading and tweeting and being part of these conversations because it's just like it's boring so that's kind of what I realized it's kind of operating it though right so they you know they might not read it but they sort of play like you said if they're tall white straight cis they're being mindful as they navigate, but they, they're not really trying to get into the intellectual sort of rigor of it. They don't want to. Or the battle, the political battle. So there, there is like this race fatigue where some folks are like, yo man, like this is boring. You know, it was cool <laughs> at the beginning and it was badass, but like now we're the corporate, right? Like we're, we're <laughs> the ones who are like corporate wokeism. Like we're the ones that, but they don't see it that way. They're always be the underdog because there's romance there similar to jordan i'm the underdog i'm being silenced and these conservative media that portray me that way i love it because i'm the underdog but i won't stand david and goliath man what's more romantic than that than to be a little dude and not giving a fuck that's that's the biggest story right that's what that's what men want they want to win but they want to be like I beat something bigger than me, right? Mm-hmm. right? So that's that's the meta that's the meta story here. Yeah, like Drake Drake called his song "Started from the Bottom, Now We're Here," <laughs> despite the fact that he started clearly from the middle. Uh, you know, it's like right. it's a, it's a better story if you start from the bottom. He grew up in Forest Hill. <laughs> yes. I live next to Forest Hill, but not in Forest Hill. I live next to Forest Hill over this bridge, over this uh, this highway. I, I shouldn't say any more than that, but uh, let's just say <laughs> that the, the name of my building tries to pretend like it's part of Forest Hill. Right. But it's not. Everybody wants to be part of Forest Hill. Yeah. And that's where that guy's from. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Upper middle, lower high. Started from upper middle. Now we're here. Oh, it's doesn't like, have the same <laughs> name, Yeah, it doesn't work yeah. the same. Right? It doesn't work. <laughs> But Jess, you have a question, man, that I wanted you... Well, I'll let you ask it. I don't know if it's still on your on your list, Jess. The question about the role of conservatives. And I like how you asked that question. I'm interested in what Maz says. Yeah, well, yeah, we want to respect your time, Maz. So maybe we'll make this the oh, last question. Oh, yeah, that's question. right. That's right. But the, one of the things that Jordan has kind of made me realize as I researched some of this stuff was... Yeah, like the like I, I I identify with the left in, in, as as a movement to try and address inequalities and create a more equal society and also address ecological responsibility and stuff like this. Jordan has made me realize the degree to which conservatives maybe play an evolutionary role in terms of some sort of like breaks on the left who can to stop us from burning down everything in the pursuit of addressing inequalities and stuff like this. And so he'll talk about like the law of unintended consequences, which I think is a really powerful concept. Is that like what you're trying to do, you're almost certainly not going to be able to do. I learned from my, my clinical research and from studying clinical research for so long and publishing it too, is that you think your intervention is going to do what you think it's going to do, but it isn't. It's going to do something else. It's very hard to define a problem correctly. It's very hard to define and to develop an intervention that's, that addresses that problem and only that problem. And then it's very hard to get the intervention to do what you want it to. He, he made me realize like that what people on the left, like myself, we need to listen to conservatives like him, filter out 
when they try to make us sound evil or like you filter out when they start talking about uh, SJWs and totalitarianism and whatever, but like listen to their critique and really try to be aware of, of what we might bring on the world through our good intentions. Yeah, man, for sure. Like I've, I've always said that on tour, it opened me up to like right wingers. It's like, let's hear what they have to say. And some of the stuff I agree with, some of the stuff I don't agree with. I'm like, I can see why you would think that. And, um, Sometimes it becomes a blurry line. I'll admit that with some people that there's a fine line between that and white identitarianism. I don't know why. Maybe it's where we live. But some of them aren't like that at all. Journalists need labels. The people that compact stories as a product. They're, they're not as interesting. And they actually go against human connection when we do that oh I, i'm going to introduce you to my buddy maz like he's he's a uh, he's totally left-wing he's one of us it's like don't don't introduce me like that like just tell him my name and tell him where i was born that's all you need to do or where i live that's all that really matters and what i'm good at and what i'm not like i mean labels only take us so far um so, but yeah, I mean, in general, you know, you could say like, I create a beautiful metaphor. You got the bird, you got the left wing and the right wing and they're float and they're flying. And it's like, yeah, you need both. And one keeps the other one in check. Ironically, in many ways, Jordan has, has kind of be out with the bathwater when he's criticizing left. It's like that whole, that whole stuff with the pills and him being in Russia and all that stuff. I've been suffering from impaired health severely impaired health as a consequence of benzodiazepine use for anxiety or more accurately from a combination of using that medication and then ceasing its use once I realized it was dangerous. Um, that's put me in and out of hospitals for much of the last year in Connecticut, in the United States, in Toronto, in Canada, in Moscow, in Russia, and in Belgrade, Serbia. I started taking it in 2016, 2017, early 2017, according to the prescribed um, recommendations, and really never give it a second thought. Uh, that was a mistake, uh, to say the least. Can't we see that a big problem with the pharmaceutical industry is capitalism? Like the reason that stuff is so expensive and marketed towards uh, the biggest demographic are white women in the States that get addicted to those pills and all those different names. I don't know them. Again, I, you know, I'm not an expert in that world, but what I can see, it's so obvious, is like neoliberalism is just like having like people addicted to these pills, you know, and we don't talk about Jordan, Jordan, you're not going to talk about that. <laughs> like, yeah. what's up? Like, 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 come on, like, it's right in front of you. Like, these are these are this is medicine. It's not products. You know, it's it's something that you should, you shouldn't be pushed on people. And in the States, that's I'm watching America. Sometimes I'm like, pirating UFC, right? So I, I, I see the American uh, commercials. And I'm like, every other one is for another pill. Mm -hmm. And half of the infomercial is side explaining all the side effects. <laughs> but, but it's like half the time, like, but they fit in four times the content because they're, they're talking so fast. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah, man. And those are long ads and they got money for it. It's like, why? they got too much money. And you, 
and, anyway, and I love so how they, they'll show say, like, like the dad smiling, playing with the kids at sunset while they're talking about like may cause uh, sterility, may cause blah blah blah. And, like it's like all these horrible things, and he's like running in slow mo, playing catch with his kids while they're talking. Maz, I'm gonna thank you for your time uh, today. Yeah, yeah. It's been really great. Um, thank you, Maz. Your 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 experience with this topic is is first notch and i really appreciate it but you do a lot of other stuff so what else are you up to where can people find your work yeah so uh, i'm at uh, mazzy art m-a-z-i-a-r-t that's my instagram i don't really use twitter anymore um that's also my site mazzyart.ca i'm working on several things i'm working on uh i just finished a short film kind of in, in part inspired through Jordan to, to a degree. It has to do with like uh, someone um, trying to be in touch with his ancestral roots. So I've been looking at kind of like decolonization, like looking at what does that mean where I'm from. And it has to do with like pre-Islamic, pre-Arab conquest of Persia, looking at Zoroastrianism, uh, for example, and like taking those those mythologies and like Persian mythology and like bringing that into a contemporary lens, like taking the meaning out of that and telling stories. So I'm working on a feature for that, a sci-fi, um, doing some sci-fi writing um, for a popular YouTube channel. I am doing live cinema. So I'm directing and kind of building software for like films that are screened and shot at the same time with live streaming. NDI actually, uh, I'm working on, um, Damn, what else? I feel like there's more. Oh, we're working on a documentary about the opioid e epidemic in the indigenous communities in northern Ontario. Um, working with an indigenous filmmaker on that, trying to get that sold. Um, but yeah, it's all on my site, so you guys can check me out. It was really good talking to you too, and uh, let's definitely do this again. I had a good time. Definitely, and anybody who uh, liked this conversation will definitely like the film The Rise of Jordan Peterson. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, Rise of Jordan one of the you can check it out on any uh, one of the platform. not only just the access you guys had but it's one of the few actually nuanced contributions to uh to this conversation so i really appreciate it thank you right man on. thank you thank you guys Lonzo, thanks very much brother appreciate it all right there it is um our interview with uh with maz gadiri of holding space films go check out their website holding space films uh, if you want to see The Rise of Jordan Peterson or any of the other great work that he and Patricia have gotten up to, or you can head to Maziart, his own website, to see all those interesting interesting things that he's working on. Um, I love somebody who, who just uh, gets involved in everything. You know, I think, I think I have a certain appreciation for that. Billy, that interview had a lot in it. It did. Um, what stuck out to you? Man, everything was pretty good. I think Maz, uh, like you said, if you go to his website, he writes a great deal as well. Um, and he's just a, a very bold, direct, honest person. And, and I appreciate people who are like that. And so I, I appreciate that interview. I hope we get to do it again with him soon. Um, I don't know. He talks about, he, he addresses Jordan Peterson in a full sense, if you ask me, or, or he attempts to in the hour now, in the hour that we have with him. He... Um, he levies a critique against Jordan Peterson while also noticing, you know, the 
way that he's affected people in positive ways. He also levies a critique against the people who critique Jordan Peterson. And I think what he what he said had to say about uh, some of the the political and, and conversational climate in the moment was was pretty pretty real. I think the goal should be to be to set up a system and a climate where conversation is 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 uh, primary, whether it's um, whether it's useful to us in some sense or pleasant uh, or not, you know, the effort to speak and then constantly be improving your speech is um, is huge. And, and that's kind of what I like about what we're doing. And I like about that interview. Um, and that actually pulls me right into this one clip I want to put out. Um, this is a clip of Jordan Peterson. And you know what? Before, I won't even set it up. Let's just let's go to it. Whatever happens as a consequence of telling the truth is the best thing that can happen. It doesn't really matter how it looks to you at the moment or maybe even across the years. Because you have to, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an article of faith in some sense. Do you believe that reality is better constituted as a consequence of truth or falsity? If you believe that reality is best constituted as a consequence of truth, then you have a responsibility to speak the truth and you can't assess the consequences and say, well, that was a mistake because part of the decision that reality is best constituted as a consequence of the truth is the decision that no matter what happens is the best if it's a consequence of telling the truth. And so that's what I conclude. It's like this is what happened because I said what I had to say as clearly as I could say it. And that's as good as it could be. Now, w whether or not that's good, well, it's good compared to all possible alternatives, all possible realistic alternatives. That's an article of faith as far as I'm concerned. You know, our culture is predicated on the idea that truth in speech is of divine significance. It's the fundamental presupposition of our culture. Well, if you believe that, then you act it out and you take the consequences. You're going to take the consequences one way or another, you know. So, you want the truth on your side? Or do you want to hide behind falsehoods? That's the question. Do you want to hide behind falsehoods? So the first thing is, I want to say is I see, I see the absurdity of having Jordan Peterson on Tucker Carlson talking about truth and honesty. Tucker right? loves Tucker it. Carlson, loves yeah, he's, it. he's a goober. And and he's the antithesis of truth on on television for sure, and sort of broadcasting. Um, and he's sitting there with his open shirt, with his little casual shirt now, and his this this one facial expression he always has. But he's also, I think, in awe of what Jordan Peterson is is saying there, um, because Jordan, even though it's an absurd setup, what Jordan actually said is deeply powerful. The idea that speaking the truth is is a requirement it's, it will require each of us to do so um to to speak your truth to be your truth to express your honest experience um and he's one of the few people with a public platform i think who articulates this concept pretty well and so i think it's it's an example of precisely one of those things we can pull out one of those good things that jordan peterson um gives us in the public discourse that we should that we should uh we should learn from and, and 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 adopt i think each of us so that's that's the, that's the second thing the third thing about that clip is you know in the full context of we talked about jordan peterson with mazier and and um he misses the like the like he wants people to speak 
their truth and he misses the other side of the coin, I think, because he knows full well about the subjectivity of truth, right? And so the same people that he frequently derides, right, the postmodern neo-Marxists and all that stuff, they are performing this very rule. They are expressing their truth. Mm -hmm. when, he, when he fails to acknowledge um, the truth, when, when a transgender person articulates their experience, he's failing to, you know, he, he's asserting his own truth without failing to acknowledge the other person's truth. So I think he needs to utilize this same principle, um, but from the other side and, and sort of, uh, and allow for some malleability in, 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 his, in his stance through a conversation, which brings me back to the conversation stuff I always do, Jess. But um, so I think that, that clip is really powerful because for all those reasons I just said. And, I, and oh, let me say one more thing. I think Jordan's a really smart guy. I think he's a talented communicator. And so for him to go on the show and say something so profound and important about articulating truth and expressing it and showing about how he uses that in his life and he's saying that his life is simply the consequence of him speaking his truth. Um, he, I, I think it's a shame, and I, and I don't understand fully how he can miss, um, again, that the, the people that he derides are, are doing the exact same thing. And I think that that truth should bring him down a notch in terms of that, that tone and that rhetoric, you know? Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that most i don't know but i don't know if it's most or a, a huge chunk of people throughout history that have been lying will explicitly talk about the the price they're paying for speaking the truth <laughs> so you know what i mean or people who are people who are manipulating people you know speakers and stuff like this and so i think peterson does get at some real truths and i think sometimes he does play demagoguery and he does um miss purposefully use fallacies like we spoke about in the interview Though he does speak about this thing about like, you know, within our culture, we see um, truth as a divine thing, right? And, yeah. and I do wonder sometimes, like I, ha I actually have no idea whether or not as religiosity has gone down in North America, for example, whether or not truth speaking has gone up or down. <laughs> you know, like I, and I, it's a big question I have. Like I start, I think about if I truly believed that if I lied, I would be going to hell would I be less likely to lie? Um, you know, it's a, big, that that, it's a big question. Yeah. I think it's a big question. I think it's a good question. I also think that, you know, it's important to do certain things. Certain things are good, but you can do good things for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. So I think it's possible to be telling the truth because you're scared of hellfire. And I think that that's like not a good reason to be telling the truth, you know? Right. And for those same, for that same fear, if you have that same fear, you're likely to tell a lie. You're just as likely to tell a lie for fear of hellfire. Um, I think this is key. This question of fear versus love is yeah. super key, right? Yeah. And I remember um, doing an interview years ago with uh, Miguel de Scotto, who was, a, who was a priest who became the president of the United Nations General Assembly. And he was, at the time, it was 2009. He, Obama had been in office for a year or so. Um, and he was criticizing Obama and then he stopped and he said, I just want to be clear. You know, he said this in his own Catholic way, you know, that I criticize President Obama from a place of love. But criticism is the prerogative or should be the prerogative only of those who love, those who love the, 
whoever or whatever they are criticizing. If we don't, we will exaggerate and God will not use our criticism uh, as a help to, uh, to change mindsets, for example. This point you're ta talking about, uh, about coming up from a place of fear versus a place of love, I think is super central. Um, yeah. And I think you'll find both those schools within religions. Yeah, absolutely. And if I add one more element to it, just getting into sort of playing some of the some of the newer ideas around psychology and around understanding our conception of reality, truth is subjective, you know? And again, Jordan knows this. So truth is about, is, is about an internal personal experience quite often for each of us. And so apart from like, so love and fear is one thing. Also, the assertion of truth, our truth is important so that we can have a shared truth, so that we can, we can, um, sort of chip away at each other, we can challenge each other, we can improve each other's understanding so that our shared truth can be one that works for all of us. And so that's another way to look at it where I think, and that way, again, it's not, that one's rooted in an effort for love and try to understand each other versus some kind of fearful, um, you know, uh, cons uh, traditional religious conception of like why we tell truth, you know? Yeah. And th this speaks to another thing that uh, that I think is strong in Peterson's work that I think is is really important for everybody to take in, and it's not. And again, like you know, Maz, Maz mentioned too, it's not everything he says is original to him, um, and he doesn't always do a good job of citing. Although sometimes he does, he definitely does. And apparently, this comes a lot from Jung, but I have a feeling it probably exists before Jung. I'm sure it goes way back. But just this this concept of knowing your shadow, um, being very aware of like in what situations you're at your worst and and where when you have feelings of resentment and what that what that brings out and what that looks like when you talk about politics and what that looks like when you talk about other groups of people there was a lesson to learn from the holocaust we're always reminded that never forget we've learned our lesson there's a lesson to be learned it's like okay fair enough man what was the lesson that's the question what was the lesson and the lesson is you're the Nazi. If you were there, that would have been you. You think, well, I'd be Oskar Schindler, I'd be rescuing the Jews. It's like, no, I'm afraid not. Yeah, You'd at least not be saying anything. Right. And you might also be actively participating. You might also enjoy it. You never know. Jung didn't believe that you could be a good person until you realized your capacity for evil. I don't mean acted it out in the world. But understand that it's, po but, it's possible. Well, not only understand it, but to, then to bring it under your control. Mm. You see, because there's a big difference between someone who's naive and is a good person. They're naive, they're a good person because they can't not be. They're like a domesticated house cat. There's nothing, they don't even have the capacity to be bad. So, there's no morality in that. The morality comes when you're a monster and you can control it. And that's the Jungian encounter with the shadow. When you have feelings of resentment and what that, what that brings out and what that looks like when you talk about politics and what that looks like when you talk about other groups of people. Um, I, think this is really, I think this is really key. It's, I, I think it's, it's important to have those. And I think it's, it also speaks to a loss of, of uh, kind of like loving places that uh that that are disappearing there there was like a 
a big study done in the 90s, I remember, about, like, how much less people in North America were, like, getting together to celebrate, to dance, to play sports together, to do all these things, to keep their, to keep their hearts afloat. And Mm. if you replace all those activities, those community building activities that make you feel good, that make you feel like you're part of something bigger, that make you, put you in touch with friends and all that stuff, and you replace all that with social media activity, where outrage is like the name is one of the names one of the most common things you'll see on there no matter how many cat videos you watch it's not going to be able to replace the feeling of community you had playing sports or or at church or dancing or playing music or whatever these things were that we Mm -hmm. used to do for centuries you know or for thousands of years um and so i I think it's in that we're a little bit out of balance and in that situation a lot of negative emotions arise and that causes us to sometimes exaggerate and speak untruths about other people and about our so-called enemies or our opponents uh politically and otherwise absolutely yeah i think we're still going through it we're still in the process of but this social media uh period which is still relatively i mean not even relatively it's just a it's a this is a new thing. This oh, is a man. new phenomenon. Um, you can make an and, argument that humanity still hasn't adjusted to the television set. You know, right? Like, exactly. Like we're, yeah. like we're still in the po- or even radio or something. You know, like we're still in the post, yeah. post radio, post television, so technological. You know, yeah. reacting to that, and then the internet comes, and, and next yeah. we'll have VR and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. There's another thing I wanted though to, to to point out that we that we touched on briefly. Um, Maz mentioned in the interview the the Bernard Schiff article in the Toronto Star, which I think for for those for people particularly for people who might be um, a f- fans of Jordan Peterson, this is a really good argument about not turning anybody into your guru, like not turning any living human into your guru. That there's a danger there and. And it's particularly strong with somebody like Peterson who has a history of ambition. And this comes through in the film, um, if, you, if you get a chance to watch the film, but also this, this article in the Toronto Star by Bernard Schiff, um, where he explicitly talks, this guy was a champion of Peterson. He helped get him his job at the University of Toronto. Um, and he talks about numerous moments uh, the, the piece is called I was Jordan Peterson's strongest supporter now I think he's dangerous and he talks about this all these things that they live together um, for example he points out this this one moment where he says uh, even though there was nothing contentious about Jordan Peterson's research he objected in principle to having his research reviewed by the university ethics committee whose purpose is to protect the safety and well-being of experiment subjects he requested a meeting with the committee I wasn't present at it, but I was told that he had questioned the authority and expertise of the committee members, had insisted that he alone was in a position to judge whether his research was ethical. And then he later goes on to say, you know, Jordan would routinely present conjecture as statement of fact. When I expressed my concern to him about this a number of times, each time Jordan would agree. He acknowledged the danger of such practices, but then continued to do it again and again, as if he could not control himself. He was a preacher more than a teacher. And then you, mm. you you throw in some of these other things, like he talks about how his earliest memory, or one of his earliest memories, was the funeral of uh, Robert F. Kennedy, and is you know this giant public funeral. And he talks about how his, one of his first memories was seeing this when he was like five years old or something, and saying to himself, 
quote, I knew I wanted a funeral like that, you know? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and then Maz talks about in the interview, you know, he wanted to buy a church at some point, you know, he was going to invest in a church so that he could, and then he would be the preacher, obviously. Um, and then I just want to put this last one to stick on this religion thing that you brought up. That the opening quote, like when you open his first book, Maps of Meaning, the, I don't know what they're called, epigraphs or whatever, like the, the, the first words written, you know, before you get to the title, is the okay. quote, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Matthew <laughs> thirteen thirty five. So... <laughs> That, for the record, is quoting none other than Bethlehem's favorite carpenter, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's a... There's That's a, important context, too, as we look into who the man is. And I think Maz, in our interview, we, we that was part of our understanding. And I think it's important because, yeah, the ambition angle is it informs the decisions he makes. You know, even like I said, I even in my, my clip, the, there, there are brilliant insights that are valuable but the decision and the circuitous path to success and fame uh the choices are laden with this this context of a, a very ambitious and smart guy um so and he's a human and yeah. he needs to be thought of as such and that's what we said what episode did we do where we said uh, no saints i think it might right. have been rbg yeah yeah we just don't do no we don't do any saints i don't think jordan no. peterson's anywhere near a saint here but no. for some people some people might regard him as such and i think that's a scary prospect and it's and it's scary and, it, and, it, and it, it's another factor that plays into this this thing where then when you see somebody criticizing him particularly if they're calling him names or whatever and what i'm saying is you got to kind of turn down the volume when they're doing that and try to find what their actual criticism is you know but what if you think he's your guru, if you think like this is the guy who has the truth, you know, <laughs> um, then then you will automatically get defensive, because you know by nature. Um, and I think it's on us, all of us, to to kind of like analyze who in our lives have we put on that pedestal. Um, it's not mm. fair to those who find things that they don't agree with in that person. It's not fair to us because nobody has all the truth. And it's actually in a very weird way. And I don't pretend to know exactly what pushed Peterson into this, uh, deep depression, um, you know, where he ended up with an addiction to, uh, antidepressants and actually had to be induced into a coma for a few weeks in Russia as part of his recovery. Um, I don't know if I, I knew a, that, but I have a feeling that this played a role like this idea the, the the weight of having millions of people think you are <clears throat> the so the source of ever of of all the good information in the world or something like this something about that pressure i think i think might have played a role so it, yeah. it's just it's just not a good approach all around to to elevate any particularly living human you could even make the argument for dead humans but definitely living ones um up to that status it shouldn't it shouldn't be reserved for anybody I think that's right, Jesse. I think mm -hmm. that's absolutely right. Another thing we talked about that we that we that we appreciate about Peterson, um, although it has its risks, uh, and and maybe not everybody should do it, and maybe Peterson shouldn't do it, um, is is thinking out loud, you know, um, trying out ideas on the fly. I think it's it's really important that we maintain private spaces with friends, you know, like I, I, I don't love the idea of total transparency on earth. 
you know, in the sense that like, I think it's important that we have places where we try out ideas. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And, 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 and even some people trying them out in public, but one of the things that happens is it definitely makes life more interesting. Like uh, it's, you know, I, I was thinking about the difference between somebody who's reading a speech versus somebody who's not. And even if, even if it's the exact same speech and they deliver it the exact same way, the person who's not reading is by nature just way more interesting to look at and way more mm-hmm. interesting to watch because of the risk. Oh, they're taking a risk, you know? We find that yeah. exciting. Um, and you definitely get that feeling with Peterson is that he's, 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 saying, he's saying things that he's saying for the first time. He has yeah. his tropes that he recycles and he repeats all over again. But a lot of the time, it really feels like he's thinking on his feet and that he's, try, like he's trying to learn as he speaks. And that is just inherently interesting. It's inherently interesting and I think it's good. I think, I think playing with ideas generally is a useful thing. It's important. You have to play with ideas and sometimes uncomfortable ideas. You have to you know, open yourself to the potential that something good can come from this kind of play, this kind of intellectual play sometimes it's philosophical play and i think when like peterson he he's he's talking on the fly and he has that ability he's an articulate man but underneath that are a set of ideas that i think aren't aren't being played with for the first time i think you know what i mean like you might be talking about a specific topic or a specific event for the first time and trying to examine it but you know He's played with these ideas in private, for sure. You know, he's, he's, he's got a, a grounding in his own sense. Uh, I had a conversation a couple of months ago about, you know, that, uh, is it the Cardi B song, WAP? Mm-hmm. That old Cardi B song. And I remember I, I, I posted about it and I said, um, you know, I, I have a right to speak about this as a, as a human. Even though I'm a man, I have a right to, to have an opinion on this, but I want to make sure I'm not broadcasting my biases. And I think that that's, mm. that's key. So it's not just, let me tell you what I think for the first time. I just thought, of, I just heard the song. Let me t- <laughs> like, I'm not just broadcasting my biases. I am, um, I've thought I have some consideration for my biases. I've considered my biases and then I've put those considerations into my present thoughts about this particular song and about these artists mm-hmm. um and i think that's key too because if you know because if there's a thin line between thinking on the fly and simply broadcasting a set of biases um yeah in a thoughtless way yeah i agree i agree 100 percent. and it's really important to have people around who, who are going to be willing to tell you what they think and people of of, of diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences and, and diverse ways of thinking um, so that you don't get in this groupthink mindset where you're all just broadcasting the same biases over and over again, uh, as you put it. I think it's important. We talked briefly in the, in the interview, too, about, about how Peterson, and I think this is like at the end of the day, I really feel like this is his most, the most dangerous aspect about him. While mm. I also think there's something positive in, in how he talks about it, um, it just, just speaks to the complexity of this dude. Uh, we talked about how he defends the status quo, you know, mm. and, um, and part of that is, is, is rooted in, in just how much he, uh, time he spends studying old storytelling, particularly in the Western tradition, um, and like how that informs everything about how he sees the world and which Disney movies he likes and which Disney movies he thinks are evil. So yeah, the Disney movies, Beauty and the Beast nailed it, uh, Little Mermaid, dead on, Sleeping Beauty, dead on, The Lion King, 
I've done a lot of analysis of. It's a little more on the edge because some of the archetypal themes in it were put in consciously, and so they're not as, they're not, they're more propagandistic in some sense. So I mean, it wasn't pure storytelling that's in, right. in your That's right, there argument. was a goal. And a story is something that you, you can't contrive it. It has to manifest itself in some sense. If you're aiming it at a moral statement, then it's not art, it's propaganda. And it'll fall flat. Frozen was a good example. That was propagandistic right from the end to the beginning as far as I was concerned. But the one major way is that he kind of defends the status quo is through one of his rules in his 12 rules to life and maybe one of the most often talked about ones which is the, the way he put it is quote set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world is that the quote yeah perfect is in there he puts the yeah, word yeah, perfect yeah. in there yeah that's nutty to me i don't understand why he would postulate that why he would throw that out with the word perfect in there mm -hmm. I, it doesn't make any sense to me I mean, unless unless he's a, a staunch defender of the status quo, which is which is what you're about to say. Exactly, because because nobody's house is ever in perfect order. Perfect order doesn't exist, right? No, I mean, it doesn't. So this is just, uh, you know, there, there's people out here who consider the earth their house, right? They're they're mm. like, you know, they're they're they sit on the top floors of the biggest buildings in your city, and mm. you know, and it's like. We, if the rest of us are waiting until our houses are in perfect order before we criticize what's going on out here, then, yeah. then you know, nothing changes. It's, it's like, it is, it is a rule almost perfectly designed if you take it seriously to maintain the status quo. That's right. Yeah. Um, I've seen him articulate something like that in slightly different ways and something about, you know, the clean your room kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he gets derided for that and, and, and he should for exactly what you're saying. Like it's, it's kind of, it's a way of um, beating people into submission away from organizing, away from thinking about big problems and acting on big problems. And, and I think that's harmful. Um, but I think the nugget here, sometimes when it's said, when he does it better, mm -hmm. I think he's, he's asking for some humility in terms of understanding the complexity of the problems and sort of starting where you are, mm -hmm. you know, and, and tackling problems in a way that sort of builds and builds confidence to, to, and builds competency to tackle larger problems. And if it's best articulated, you can come away with something like that. But if he says something like perfect your, <laughs> your own house, before, you know, that's, that's trash. And that's something to, um, yeah. And to discard. <clears throat> And it, and it also speaks to what I think is, in general, his most positive message, which, which I first got, or like the person who crystallized it for me was Viktor Frankl, who we talked about in the first ever episode of Where Is Now. Um, the idea, the importance of taking on personal responsibility as a way to find meaning, you know, um, as a way to find, you know, your, your, to root yourself um, in, in the world. And, you know, I think especially in, in this, you know, modern consumer culture, uh, this, this, we need this reminder, you know, numerous times that, that we won't just, pleasure alone won't fulfill us and consuming alone won't fulfill us and all this stuff. And so, and sex alone won't fulfill us or whatever these things are that are being, that are being sold to us. Um, and I don't think people should be labeled, if, if Peterson is the voice that brings that to somebody or whether for the first time or as a reminder because they didn't have religion in their life or they didn't have, or their parents didn't teach them or they've 
been living outside of home for 18 years or 40 years or whatever it might be and they just needed the reminder if it if it happens to come from peterson i don't think people should be labeled um with some of the other things that peterson says as a result of getting that message from peterson and uh yeah i think that's that's just like an overall thing i would take away from this because he does he does say it very well that's what i'm saying so so often i mean he he is a gifted speaker with some interesting insights and the whole point of the whole you know the interview in the episode is is about that media literacy and 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 finding finding the strengths and weaknesses and and avoiding this tendency to collapse and reduce um and get into the weeds and become really interested in people become really interested in in what they're saying uh in a more detailed and, and nuanced and full way hmm Billy, I'm interested in what you're saying. Both, Thanks, both specifically and generally, both in this moment and always. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm very looking forward to, uh, to doing more episodes of Where's Now with you and, and getting into the next one. My guy. Me too, man. This mm. is episode 10. Is it? Um, and we have commit to doing these more frequently as well, right? That's correct. So uh, the next one's coming ASAP. Real soon. And, and just to go out with, I'm just going to use this opportunity to play one of my favorite clips of all time on this question of fear versus love. Um, and that is by the always interesting and always controversial comedian Bill Hicks. Uh, this was his last HBO special before he died. He was one of the only people on earth while he was saying these words that you're about to hear who knew that he was going to die from cancer. Uh, I think he was 32, I want to say at the time. And, uh, and this was his last words uh, to the world. You've been fantastic, and I hope you enjoyed it. There is a point. Is there a point to all this? Let's find a point. Is there a point to my act? I would say there is. I have to. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and round and round. It has thrills and chills, and it's very brightly colored, and it's very loud, and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to question, is this real, or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us, and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride, and we kill those people. <laughs> Shut him up. We have a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real. It's just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok. But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your door, buy guns, close yourself off. The eyes of love instead see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over, not one human being excluded, and we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. Thank you very much. You've been great. I hope you enjoyed it.
London, you're fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much.